Hi, this is Carly, a recovered alcoholic. Welcome back to episode 18. We are at the top of page 40 and more about alcoholism. This is part three. We were just reading about Fred, who was a partner in a well-known accounting firm. He lost his position. He has been working on staying sober. He told himself a lie that he could go to the hospital, arrest his nerves. Um, he ends up going... He ends up drinking again. And he says to them, who's the first 100 men and women, that um, he was a long way from admitting he could do nothing about it himself. He was positive that his humiliating experience plus the knowledge he had acquired would keep him sober the rest of his life. Self-knowledge would fix it. That's where we left off last week, which is, I got this. So where we are today is, we heard no more of Fred for a while. I wrote above this, our disease progresses. Our disease progresses. One day we were told that he was back in the hospital. I underlined the words this time and I wrote next to it gets worse. This time he was quite shaky. He soon indicated he was anxious to see us. The story he told is most instructive for here was a chap absolutely convinced he had to stop drinking, who had no excuse for drinking, who exhibited splendid judgment and determination in all his other concerns, yet was flat on his back nevertheless. Let him tell you about it. I underlined I was, and I wrote on the side all, the word all, and then in quotation marks I wrote the letter I, because I want to pay attention to how he's self-sufficient and he's doing this on his own. I was much impressed with what you fellows said about alcoholism, and I frankly did not believe it would be possible for me to drink again. I underlined I rather appreciated your ideas about, I underlined the subtle insanity which precedes that first drink. And then in red, I underlined subtle insanity because that's what's really dangerous. It's really subtle. One of the members of my home group says that his mental obsession is the most reasonable sounding voice in his head. And on the side, I wrote the words mental obsession. It's very subtle. It's not going to say, hey, go drink, idiot. It's going to say things like, you don't need to go to that meeting or you don't need to call your sponsor or you don't need to send that inventory or... You already sent an inventory just like this. Why do you need to send it again? Or my sponsor is going to judge me. None of these things is true. and None of these things is going to get me what I want. But I underlined I was confident. He was confident it could not happen to me after what I had learned. I underlined I reasoned. So that, And I wrote on the side self-knowledge would fix it. I reasoned I was not so far advanced as most of you fellows, that I had been usually successful in licking my other personal problems, and that, I underlined, I would, therefore, be successful where you men failed. I underlined, I felt I had every right to be self-confident, that it would be, I underlined, only a matter of exercising my willpower and keeping on guard. So I wrote a couple of things here. Next to that sentence, I wrote Fred's program. So Fred's program was... Exercising his willpower, above willpower, I wrote the word mind. And I wrote on the on the bottom, power of a sane mind. So when it comes to the willpower, we're talking about the power of a sane mind. He's using a not sane mind, which is a mind less than whole. And that's his program, is he's going to use his mind to keep himself sober. My program, before I actually did the program, was to go to meetings, to hook up with sick guys and to not drink and to hang out with my old friends and wonder why I was so miserable. It says, in this frame of mind, I went about my business and for a time all was well. I underlined the next sentence. I had no trouble refusing drinks and began to wonder if I had not been making too hard work of a simple matter. I wrote next to that, the lie. And then I wrote, the mind is angling 
one of my sponsors talks about this a lot, that our mind is always angling the truth to look a little bit different. So we shift the, the truth in order to fit our needs. Now he's saying to himself, which is what I said to myself, maybe I was being too dramatic. One day I went to Washington to present some accounting evidence to a government bureau. I had been out of town before during this particular dry spell, so there was nothing new about that. Physically, I felt fine. Neither did I have any pressing problems or worries. I wrote on the top of the page, we cannot drink on the truth. We cannot drink on the truth. And then I wrote, we drink on the lie. So we cannot pick up a drink if it's based on the facts that this is going to kill us and shut us off from everything. We drink on the lie that we tell ourselves that it'll be okay, it'll be different, or no one will find out. And I wrote on the top also, no alcohol in his body. So just FYI, this person is not physically craving alcohol. He's not had alcohol in his body, and that is not going to help him make the decision to pick up alcohol. My business came off well. I was pleased and knew my partners would be too. It was the end of a perfect day, not a cloud on the horizon. I wrote on the side or next to the word horizon, I wrote the subtle insanity, the subtle insanity of our mind. And what's really interesting about this top paragraph in 41 is it just completely contradicts anything that any treatment centers do with their patients who make lists of all their triggers. And on their trigger list would be all these bad things that could come up or music or old friends. But what this guy just talked about was a great day, going to a familiar place, business was great, he physically feels fine, nothing is making him upset. So with treatment centers that talk about this kind of thing as a trigger, they, they would say that this, there's no triggers here, which is my point which is there is no such thing. The only trigger that there is for me is if I'm not working the steps, I'm likely to pick up a drink at any moment because the mental obsession will convince me that that's what I need to do. So my point is, is that this day was fine and he still drinks. I went to my hotel and leisurely dressed for dinner. I underlined the next three sentences. As I crossed the threshold of the dining room, the thought came to mind that it would be nice to have a couple of cocktails with dinner. I underlined, that was all, nothing more. I double underlined the word thought, and I wrote next to it, the lie. It's kind of like the thought that the other guy had that he could put whiskey and milk. This guy says, hey, it would be nice to have a few cocktails with dinner. Totally forgets about alcoholism and what those guys told him. I ordered a cocktail on my meal. He didn't even freak out that he was doing it. It was just normal. Then I ordered another cocktail. After dinner, I decided to take a walk. When I returned to the hotel, I underlined, it struck me, and above that I wrote, the lie. The lie struck me. A highball will be fine before going to bed. And I wrote on the side, allergy has taken over. Allergy has taken over. So now he's not even making decisions with his mind anymore. He's activated the physical allergy and he needs to drink. So I stepped into the bar and had one. I remember having several more that night and plenty next morning. I have a shadowy recollection of being in an airplane bound for New York and of finding a friendly taxicab driver at the landing field instead of my wife. The driver escorted me about for several days. I know little of where I went or what I said and did. Then came the hospital with, I underlined in red, unbearable mental and physical suffering. I wrote next to this, it's kind of long, 
This is a progressive illness. This is a progressive illness. If living on self-will, which is my self-thinking, if living on self-will bound to happen, bound to happen, this is a progressive illness. If living on self-will bound to happen, and then I wrote the word suffering in quotation marks, the suffering is bound to happen. If you stay around these rooms and you see people that you knew um, who left come back and tell you about their suffering, you're never going to hear a new story. It's going to be the same story over and over. The next paragraph says, As soon as I regained my ability to think, I went carefully over that evening in Washington. I underlined the next two sentences, the squiggly lines. Not only had I been off guard... I had made no fight whatever against the first drink. This time, I had not thought of the consequences at all. I wrote on the side, no mental defense. No mental defense. And then I wrote, believe the lie. Believe the lie. And then I wrote, obsession of the mind. Obsession of the mind, which is a thought that blocks out all other thoughts. I had commenced, which means began, to drink as carelessly as though the cocktails were ginger ale. I now remember what my alcoholic friends had told me, how they prophesied that, I underlined, if I had an alcoholic mind, I underlined, the time and place would come. And I wrote on the bottom of the page, time and place, time and place won't come if working 10, 11, and 12. Time and place won't come if working 10, 11, and 12. I remember I used to be afraid that I was going to drink while I was newly sober or in my first couple years of sobriety. I would be afraid. Oh, my God, I hope I don't drink. I'm no longer afraid that I'm going to drink because I, I actively work 10, 11, and 12 every single day, even though I mess up all day long. Because if I'm working 10, I'm clearing out my hallway between me and God. If I'm working 11, I'm connecting to my higher power. I'm getting guidance, intuitive direction, and I'm making sure I didn't miss anything in my nightly inventory. And if I'm working 12, I'm constantly carrying the message and practicing these principles in all of my affairs. Not well, but doing my best with it. If I'm doing those three things, the mental obsession will not come back because I'm not going to allow anything to block me off from my power ever again as long as I daily do that work every single day. And because of that, I don't have to be afraid of drinking because it's not – I always get upset when I hear people say – when they reintroduce themselves or they talk about someone relapsing and they say, oh, I had a slip. A slip is something that happens if you live in Cleveland or a wintry area and you're in a parking lot and a black – on a blacktop parking lot and you don't see that it's black ice and you slip and you fall. A slip indicates something that you have no control over, that you're a victim of, you didn't know was there and it just happened. If I picked up a drink, it is not a slip. It is a conscious decision to not do the work. And I might not be aware each time I make the decision to not do the work that this decision I'm making is leading me closer to the drink, but it is. Anytime I choose to not do the work, what I'm really saying is I'm willing to gamble with my sobriety. On my home group the other night, we were talking about the 11 step and how important it is to do our morning meditation. And I talked about how I made a commitment about six years ago when I started working with one of my sponsors that I wanted what they had and I was willing to do what they were doing, which was 10, 11, and 12 consistently every day. It was not a goal, like a big thing I'd like to do, like I'd like to climb some mountain or something I'd like to, I'd like to run a marathon one day. I'd like, it was a commitment, which means to me, 
I'm committing myself to this action. Every single day, I'm committed that no matter what, nothing will stand in my way of me doing my morning work. And since I've made that commitment, I've never broken it. It doesn't mean that I'm awesome or spiritually amazing. It just means that I've made a commitment to myself and God that I'm doing this work. When the topic came up, my sponsor said that when he wasn't doing the work, his sponsor said to him something along the lines of, what makes you think you can not do this work and stay sober? And that's really the the question is in Alcoholics Anonymous, if I want to follow the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, but I don't want to do everything it says, what makes me think I'm so special that it's not going to bring me back out? And so the time and place will not come if I'm doing the work. For him, it did come because he wasn't doing the work. I underlined on the bottom of 41, I would drink on the top of 42, the word again. And then I underlined basically the rest of the paragraph. It says, they had said that though I did raise a defense, it would one day give way before some trivial reason for having a drink. Well, just that did happen and more. For what I had learned of alcoholism did not occur to me at all. I knew from that moment I had an alcoholic mind and I circled the words alcoholic mind and I wrote on the side, the lie. On the top of the page, I wrote the thought that comes before the first drink. The thought that comes before the first drink. And this is always important to talk about because I've, I hear people in Alcoholics Anonymous meetings, well-meaning people say, you cannot get drunk if you don't pick up the first drink or just don't pick up the first drink to a new person who comes in and says, I'm struggling. I, I can't live like this. I don't know how to, do, to stay sober. And we say to them, just don't pick up the first drink. It's like, well, thanks, Nancy Reagan. I'm so glad that I just learned that information. I had no idea that I should just not pick up the first drink. I'm just going to go home and sit in my room and rock in my bed till three in the morning. If I was able to not pick up the first drink on my own, I would get a tattoo of it on my arm. I would look at it whenever I wanted to drink and I would go, oh yeah, don't pick up the first drink. And then I'd go on my merry way. But I have a mental obsession that doesn't care about that thought. And so the real problem is my thinking that tells me it's okay to pick up the first drink. And I love the story and I don't know if I've told it on this podcast before or not, so I apologize if I have, um, but it's worth repeating the idea that it's not the engine that kills you, it's the caboose, or it's not the caboose that kills you, it's the engine, it's not the first drink that kills you, it's the seventh drink, it's not the seventh drink, it's the first. And one of my sponsors says that when he brought that to his sponsor, his sponsor said, no, you idiot, why do you even think that it's either of those? The real problem is that you think you can stand on a train track when a moving train is coming and not get hit. The real problem is that I believe the lie that I cannot do this work and I will stay sober. That's my real problem. I also wrote on the side, um, didn't do the work. So when it says they they had said that though I did raise a defense, it would one, get, one day give way before some trivial reason. This is someone who's taken through one through three. He knew what the problem was. He knew what the solution was. And he decided to do something about it. He just didn't follow it through with action. So I wrote, didn't do the work. I underlined, I saw that willpower and self-knowledge would not help in those strange mental blank spots. Remember, willpower is the power of a sane mind. And self-knowledge is information that I already know about myself. I wrote on the side, I have 
this alcoholic mind. My mind does that. It will tell me the lie that it's okay to do certain things that I already know for a fact that I've proven and I have evidence are not okay. Anytime I try to do something that I know for a fact doesn't work for me, it's not the person's fault that hurts me. It's my fault. I'm delusional. It says, I had never been able to understand people who said that a problem had them, I underlined in red, hopelessly defeated. And I wrote it on the side, step one, which is what happened to me in step one. It was my end and my beginning and my gift and my pain. I underlined, I knew then it was a crushing blow. And that's what step one really is. We do step one before we get in the rooms. We just formalize it when we take, when our sponsor takes us through and explains what the mental obsession, the physical allergy and being powerless means. But hopelessly being defeated and knowing and it being a crushing blow and waking up and coming to and feeling those horrible feelings, that desperation, that gift of desperation, that is step one. We come to AA or we come back to AA because of step two because we believe there is an answer here. And we make the decision to do something about it, hopefully immediately, because we want to get out of the pain. And then what we do about it is four through nine. And then while we're working on our nine step amends, we're doing 10 and 11 on a regular basis. We do 12 as much as we can. And when it's time and when we're ready and when um, we've worked our way through one through 11 on a regular basis and we're doing 10 and 11, we start reaching out and doing 12. It says, two of the members of Alcoholics Anonymous came to see me. They grinned, which I didn't like so much. I didn't like when people grinned at me either. I underlined, and then asked me if I thought myself alcoholic and if I were really licked this time. So I wrote on the side, ask. So at this moment, you should pause and you should either ask yourself or when you're taking someone through, you should stop and ask them. You say, do you think you are an alcoholic? And the other question is, do you think you're really done? It says, I had, so the rest of the paragraph I bracketed and the next paragraph. So from here, from I had to concede until the bottom of the next paragraph, I bracketed and I wrote on the side 12th step. So what they're doing is the 12th step call. It says, I had to concede, which means to give in. And I circled the word both before the word propositions. I had to give in both propositions. And next to the word both on the side, I wrote physical craving and mental obsession. So he had to give in that he had a physical craving and a mental obsession. They, that's the first 100 men and women and whoever was with him, the two guys, piled on me heaps of evidence to the effect that an alcoholic mentality, such as I had exhibited in Washington, was a hopeless condition. I underline the next sentence. They cited cases out of their own experience by the dozen. So that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to talk about our experience that highlights the mental obsession and the physical allergy. My job isn't to go and talk to someone and tell them about all my great times. My job at this 12-step call is to talk about my stories that will highlight my mental obsession and my physical allergy. This process of the 12-step call snuffed out the last flicker of conviction that I could do the job myself. I underline the next sentence. Then they outlined the spiritual answer, and above spiritual answer, I wrote step two. The spiritual answer is in step two. Then they outlined the spiritual answer, and I kept underlining, and program of action, which I wrote three through 12, which a hundred of them had followed successfully. So I put a star next to that sentence because that's the deal. You come to us hopeless and miserable and lost and I can't do this. We give you a spiritual answer, which is step two, and then we show you how to do the program of action, which is three through 12. Though I have been only a nominal churchman, their proposals were not intellectually hard to swallow. I underlined 
this. But the program of action, though entirely sensible, was pretty drastic. I circled the program of action, and I circle was pretty drastic. One of my sponsors and I often get accused of being very drastic or rigid or intense. And that's why I underline a lot of things in red on all my pages. So, like, on this page in red, I have hopelessly defeated underline, and on the other page next to it, I have 100% hopeless and heartbreaking. And the reason why I have those in red underline is whenever someone is accusing me of being dramatic or intense, I remind myself and I share with them the truth about our alcoholism. So, yes, our program of action is the 12 steps is sensible and pretty drastic. We're admitting that, absolutely. We want you to understand that in order to change, in order to change enough for this to to make a difference and to be sufficient, it has to be pretty drastic. So I don't sugarcoat the program. I don't say, hey, you can just do a little bit. I'll let you know when you're ready to do the rest. Anyone is welcome to be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous if they want to come to AA. If you have a desire to stop drinking, you're a member if you say you are. If you want to recover and become a recovered alcoholic and you want to work our program, which is the program of action, the only thing we have to offer you is the 12 steps, which are pretty drastic. I underlined, it meant I would have to throw several lifelong conceptions out of the window. I wrote on the side, sinking boat, and I wrote the word abandon. Sinking boat and abandon. If I'm in a boat that's got holes in it and it's sinking, I'm not going to stay in the boat because I love the boat. I'm going to abandon the boat and start treading water because I don't want to go down. And if what I'm on is sinking, I have to be willing to let it go. And for me, when I started to really work the steps, especially four and five, I had to let go of my number one tool. My number one tool before I got sober, my number one tool in sobriety, all the way up until I started working the the, the steps out of the book, which I was about six months sober when I finally was willing to because I was miserable. I had to let go of my number one tool, which was don't trust anyone. Rule number one, don't trust anyone. I had to let go of that because it was like a sinking ship I was in. And the person I'm working with, the person who's guiding me through it is in an awesome, safe, secure boat. And they're on a sinking ship with holes in water. It says, that was not easy. I underlined, that was not easy. I underlined, but the moment I made up my mind to go through with the process, I had the curious feeling that my alcohol condition was relieved, as in fact it proved to be. And I wrote on the side, life or death. And if I can't see this as life or death, then either I'm not being taken through it out of the book, because it talks about life or death all the time, or I'm so blocked off and I don't believe I'm a real alcoholic and I'm trying to angle myself out the door. It says, quite as important was a discovery. I underline this part, and it's so beautiful, and I forget about it all the time. That spiritual principles would solve all my problems. And I, like, quadruple underline the word all. It says in the book that spiritual principles would solve all my problems. That means money. That means relationship. That means family, career, self stuff, Alcoholics Anonymous, all of my problems. Raising children, everything health stuff. So that means anything I'm dealing with can be solved through spiritual principles. It doesn't say that it's going to make them go away. It's going to say it's going to solve them. I'm going to find a way to deal with them. I have since been brought into a way of living infinitely more satisfying and I hope more useful than the life I lived before. I wrote on the top, if you relate, so if you relate to this chapter that we just went over where every single page has us believing the lie, I wrote, if you relate, 
you have an alcoholic mind. If you relate, you have an alcoholic mind. And then I wrote real problem. Our real problem isn't what we put in our body. Our real problem is that our mind tells us it's okay. It's impossible to make the decision to accept spiritual help based on a lie. We have to accept the truth. So just like it's impossible for me to pick up a drink based on the truth, I have to lie to myself in order to do that. It is impossible for me to decide to accept spiritual help based on the lie. I have to do it with the truth in my face. Which is why we like to get people immediately as soon as they walk in the doors and they're miserable and they have death in their eyes and start them through the steps. Because when they're miserable and desperate and tired, they'll be willing to do whatever they have to do to not feel like that. And I wrote on the side, no recovery in chapter three. So this whole chapter that we just read has no recovery in it. It's just talking about the problem. My old manner of life was by no means a bad one, but I would not exchange its best moments for the worst I have now. I would not go back to it even if I could. I always struggled with this part because I had a really good time when I was using, when I was out there and it was good. It was awesome. It was the best time I've ever had in my mind. And I couldn't understand how I would not want to trade an awesome day drinking and sucking up life versus a miserable day in sobriety. And what I come what I've come to with this is even on my awesome days drinking, I didn't like myself at all. In fact, I hated myself. So the awesome day was just me having a good time and being um distracted enough that I couldn't remember that I hated myself or getting approval or affection or attention from somebody that I needed it from. I hated myself. I was lost. I had no direction. I felt so insecure. So that's my foundation even on a fun day and my foundation today even on a hard day is I love myself I have a God I believe in I have tools I have a support group I have purpose and direction and I have a guide and even when I struggle super hard I have all those things and I'm not willing to trade one for the other it says Fred's story speaks for itself we hope it strikes home to thousands like him. He had felt only the first nip of the ringer. I underline the next sentence. Most alcoholics have to be pretty badly mangled before they really commence to solve their problems. Many doctors and psychiatrists agree with our conclusions. One of these men, staff members of a world-renowned hospital, recently made this statement to some of us. This is Silkworth. So I wrote on the side, Dr. Silkworth. What you say about, I underline, the general hopelessness of the average alcoholic's plight is, in my opinion, correct. So I underline that. Dr. Silkworth says this. As to two of you men whose stories I have heard, I underlined, there is no doubt in my mind that you were 100% hopeless apart from divine help. And then in red, I underlined 100% hopeless. And above, apart from divine help, I wrote, doctor says this. A doctor is saying, you need divine help. I wrote this on the side because I can relate to it. You don't have to write it unless you do. I wrote, I am 100% powerless because I am on my own, left to my own devices, without a power, without the steps, without my support group, without my sponsor, I'm lost. Had you offered yourselves as patients at this hospital, I would not have taken you if I had been able to avoid it. I underline people like you are too heartbreaking and in red, I underline heartbreaking. 
Though not a religious person, I have profound respect for the spiritual approach in such cases as yours. And next to that sentence about people like you are too heartbreaking, I wrote on the side to those around us. So that's how people around us, people who love alcoholics, whether by blood or affection, um, we are heartbreaking to be around. That's what we are to them. I underlined, for most cases, there is virtually no other solution. And then I underlined the whole next paragraph. It says, once more, the alcoholic at certain times has no effective mental defense against the first drink. And on the top of this paragraph, I wrote, without the 12 steps. So what they're talking about here, the alcoholic they're talking about here, is one that's not working the 12 steps. Except in a few rare cases, neither he nor any other human being, I circled human being, and I wrote on the side, including the fellowship, because it's just made up of human beings, including the fellowship, can provide such a defense. His defense must come from a higher power. I wrote on the side, can't think our way out of it. Can't think our way out of it. I tried. And I wrote on the bottom, doomed to an alcoholic death. Doomed to an alcoholic death. And I also wrote one more thing. The, per- the person has never been through the steps. So the person we're talking about, the alcoholic that has no effective mental defense, is not has not been taken through the steps. You can also be taken through the steps, stop doing the work, and become this person also. We're going to stop here. Next week we'll start on We Agnostics. And I'm so grateful for your time and for your listening. I hope you have an awesome week. It's totally up to you.